We are in the middle of John Wesley. This is week two. Um, uh, week one was kind of a background on his life. We got him up through a certain big experience that we're going to talk about in a little more detail. Uh, but this morning, uh, we are looking at John Wesley, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, if you think about it, uh, that's quite enough. Thank you. Uh, if you think about it, I, I'm always hesitant to speak poorly or ugly about anybody for fear someone's going to do it back to me. Um, and I got like, uh, uh, I'm, I'm one of those guys that Pastor Fleming was talking about this morning. Uh, I've got a good friend who goes to, to another church here in town. I asked him once, I said, don't you work at the church? He said, yes. I said, what's your job? He says, my job is to provide the sinning for the preaching. And, and with due respect to that gentleman who was doing a pretty good job of it, I might add, with due respect to him, I'm always afraid to say anything too negative about anybody else because uh, uh, more negative can be said about me than probably everybody in this room put together. And so I am speaking in context this morning, and I'd like to make sure before I even remotely suggest there is anything bad or ugly about the life of John Wesley, I would like to explain that we have right now over 6.7 billion people on the planet. That's alive today not counting all the ones in history. And we can point out good, bad, and ugly about every human that's ever lived with the exception of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, So I don't want to speak like, boy, that John Wesley had some real negatives in his life, in any way meaning it harsh and critical, because we can do that with all of us throughout history except for Jesus. And so I do it understanding that I think John Wesley himself would want us to learn not only from the wonderful, incredible things he did, but also learn from perhaps some of the mistakes or, or areas where uh, his light may not have shined as brightly as it did in others. So having said that, I've pulled out just a few areas of John Wesley's life where we can focus and look on, on and learn not only from the good in his life, but learn also from the areas where, where it did not seem quite so good. And the first one I want to talk to you about is John Wesley on salvation. Now, those of you who just heard Pastor Fleming preach just heard a phenomenal sermon from Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 with the 10 teaser at the end, um, uh, uh, which is a wonderful explanation of our salvation that Paul had written to the church at Ephesus. Um, Wesley wrote a good deal on salvation. And one of the reasons we're able to examine Wesley, both the good, the bad, and the ugly, is because the guy was a writing machine. He was a writing machine. Uh, we have the collected works of John Wesley. They're in 14 volumes. They're like not thin volumes. They're thick. And it's not like someone afterwards went and just collected a bunch of his sermons from notes like, say, Watchman Nee or something like that. I mean, he actually wrote all of this and then edited all of this and then published it and then went back and re-edited it because he didn't think the publishers got it right and he changed his viewpoints later on in his life and he wanted to make sure things were in order before he died. This fellow was a prolific author. So we have a lot He was also a, that he wrote, he also was a prolific journaler. Starting at a very early age, he kept a journal of how God was working in his life and how he was living. 
And he'd write down when he was doing good things and when he wasn't. And so we have a whole lot of material we can read from. Those journals have all been published. And so with that in mind, let's look what Wesley said about his salvation. And it was really an an interesting experience for me to read through John Wesley and to see some of this. I've got some things in the PowerPoint that are not in your written materials. It's called, I wrote the materials on the road while I was out of town over the week. And then yesterday I got home to read through the works of John Wesley himself because I didn't take the 14 volumes with me on the road. Sorry. And, uh, uh, and I got some new material to like flesh out what's in the written handouts. So uh, here's a little bit extra beyond what we've got in the handouts. John Wesley, he says the following. I believe till I was about 10 years old, I had not sinned away that washing of the Holy Ghost which was given me in baptism. He'd been baptized as an infant and believed that that washed him from the sins that he had inherited, the original sins of Adam, and that until he was ten, he was still pure from that baptism. He hadn't sinned. He had real strict parents. Um, Having been taught... He says, I was taught, and he says, actually, I don't uh, uh, have it exactly right there. He says, having been taught continually and emphatically, that I could only be saved by keeping all the commandments of God. That's what he was taught. And so he believed for the first ten years he was saved because he hadn't sinned. He makes it clear he only knew about outward sins. He wasn't aware of sins of the heart. And outwardly, he hadn't done any of that stuff you're not supposed to do. First ten years, he was still clean. If he was going to take a chalkboard and do his list of sins, first ten years, bam, he don't have any. He said, for the first ten years, I was in the church, I'd been baptized, I was in the church, and I had not sinned. That was his perspective. What we're looking at right now is Wesley's perspective, not God's. I think God would disagree with Wesley on this point. But from Wesley's perspective, this is what Wesley thought. Wesley also said, for the next six or seven years, he had left home at the age of ten and went to boarding school. Finished up his boarding school, then started at Oxford probably around age sixteen. He says, for the next six or seven years, I was almost continually guilty of outward sin. Okay? He says, so how was I going to be saved? I hoped at the time that I'd be saved because even though I was sinning, I was better than most people. You know, if you put it on a pyramid of sinners, you got all these different people on the pyramid doing all these things. Man, I was at the top. So if God's going to save any sinners, He's going to pick me because as bad as I was, I was a whole lot better than the rest of those cretins I was running around with. I was a designated driver. So that was his view for the next few years. Then Wesley goes, he says, I kind of grew past that. For the next six or seven years, I was continually guilty of outward sins. I thought I might be saved by being better than others. If not, surely I'd get saved because I was caring about religion. See? This is the, I'm trying real hard salvation. (laughs) 
<laughs> Bless his heart. I've used his picture on all of these and just kind of cut and pasted. That's not really him. <laughs> I got a picture of Louis Miori and superimposed Wesley's face on it. <laughs> Trying real hard. You know, that's when you just want to go up to him and sing the song. Is your burden heavy as you bear it all alone? You know, I mean, he's just there struggling. I don't know. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've thought I'm going to get saved because I'm trying hard. I care about religion. Doing the best I can. I'm better than a lot of these cretins. So, you know, maybe how about the third reason? He says, if I, I hope to be saved either by being better than others or by caring about religion or reading the Bible, going to church, and praying. I know I'm guilty of sin, but I'm reading the Bible, I'm going to church, I'm praying, I'm not as bad as everybody, I'm playing the religion game. Earn salvation, that's go. Got baptized, pray, the players. Uh, that says uh, keep going, because you didn't. he didn't go to jail. See, um, Plot, chance. He's tithing. He's going to church. He's doing the religion game. Maybe that's going to save him. He says, and then I decided that wasn't going to do it either. So I got more diligent about both outward and inward sin. And this is when he started journaling each hour. Every hour he would take out his journal and write down what he'd done that hour. And what his heart had been. And he'd give himself a grade on a scale of one to nine. I don't know why not one to ten. Guess he was odd. One to nine. Okay. Anyway, the uh, one to nine. Yeah. <laughs> one to nine was his grading scale. And he'd do this. He'd do this spiritual audit every hour as a means of being hyper vigilant to make sure that he was minimizing his occasion of both outward and inward sin. And he says, by my continued endeavor to keep the whole law, by the fact I just kept trying so hard to do it all to the utmost of my power, I was persuaded, surely I'm saved. Surely I'm saved because I'm just trying so blasted hard. I mean, I have kicked it up to, to notches previously unknown. I am just really going... If you put it in the balance, surely my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. He thought, maybe this is it. Now, some of the humor... Not humor. Some of the irony... This may not be irony either. An interesting aspect of this is... <laughs> he's preaching all of this time as an ordained minister. At this point, he's preaching as an ordained minister. He would not be preaching the incredible sermons we're hearing on Ephesians by Pastor David. Because <laughs> he didn't understand this stuff yet. See, he says, I was doing my best. And I was praying for forgiveness. And I just hoped I would die at some point when I was pure. You know, I, I, I'd do my best, I'd audit, I'd do my, and, and I'd, I'd sin, and when I realized that sin, I'd pray for forgiveness, and I just hoped I was going to die at one of those moments where I had, between praying for forgiveness and sinning again. You know, this is the chalkboard, where you're pure, 
You commit sin, one, two, three, etc., 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 and then you repent and confess, and that makes you pure again. And you just hope and pray that you die during that period of time. You don't want to die between sin, one, two, three, and before confession. Then you go to hell. Go straight to hell. Do not pass go. Do not collect salvation. Okay? That was his mentality. And so he says this. He says, Then I had a near-death encounter. And I found that I don't have any peace at all about my salvation. And he said, At this point, I had learned a more excellent way. And this is where he met a Moravian missionary who had started in Germany, was in England getting his house in order before he went to America as a missionary. The Moravians, by the way, are some of the first missionaries since like uh, uh, the 400s, 500s, when the the Catholic Church was sending out a lot. Some of the first Protestant missionaries, at least we should say, were the Moravians. Peter Bowler, also spelled B-O-E, H-L-E-R, or the two dots over the O, which I don't know how to do it in PowerPoint. So, meet Peter Bowler. This is an engraving of the gentleman, a picture of the man. He is someone who sat down with Wesley and spoke with Wesley at great length. Wesley was a very um, charismatic, uh, uh, attractive figure that was drawing a lot of attention. Peter Bowler, going through England on his way to America, meets with Wesley and starts engaging Wesley in a little theological dialogue. Proceeds to tell Wesley, the preacher, the following. Wesley, you have no saving faith. Wesley was stunned. Wesley argued with him. Bowler's big point was, if you have saving faith, Bowler argued, first of all, it comes in an instant. There's this instantaneous 180. Bam! And number two, it is always accompanied by a complete assurance and peace about your salvation. Wesley did not have either of those. He'd kind of been brought up in the church. And, 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 and he didn't have that peace, that confidence of his salvation. So because of that, Bowler was telling Wesley, you're not saved. Wesley said, well... Yes, I am. Bowler said, well, show me in Scripture where anybody has salvation like you have. And Wesley at first couldn't because in Scripture you don't find anyone reared in the church because Scripture is where the church is being established. You know? Cornelius is not reared in the church. He's saved when Peter comes and the Holy Spirit descends and, and, and you know, he and his household were saved. You don't have him... You, you, you just don't see that in Scripture. So Wesley's response is, well, Scripture is, is the, the delivery of God's work. It's not what's happened in subsequent generations. And so Bowler said, well, let me bring in some friends. So Bowler brought in some friends. How are you saved? How are you saved? How are you saved? And all of a sudden, Wesley says, oh, man, this could be my problem. This would explain why I don't have assurance and I don't feel saved all the time and why I've panicked about my salvation when faced with death. So Wesley reached a point where he finally said, You're right, Bowler, I don't have saving faith. I guess I better quit preaching. Bowler said, No, 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 preach anyway. 
Wesley said, what? He says, yeah, just uh, fake it till you make it. That's almost literally what he said. Preach faith until you get faith. And once you get it, then you'll still preach it. Just preach right, even if you don't have it. So Wesley keeps... I mean, after that, Wesley goes to the jail and visits a guy who's about to be executed, converts, uh, uh, or is there for the Holy Spirit to convert the fella. Fella goes to the gallows singing praises to God. Wesley leaves thinking, gee, I'm going to hell, but at least I'm helping a lot of other people go to heaven. Now, I'm telling you what's going on in Wesley's view and in his life. I'm not giving you God's eternal view of this because I don't think Wesley had a good grasp of how God was working in his life and what God was doing. But I will tell you that there came a day where Wesley goes to a a, a Moravian meeting on Aldersgate, which is a street near where he lived, goes to Aldersgate, and you might hear of Aldersgate Methodist churches. There are Methodist churches that have that in their name in, in all over the world because of the experience that happened there. It was what Wesley called his conversion. At that, during the sermon, Wesley says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. The sermon was from Luther's preface to the book of Romans. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that He had taken away my sins and saved me. Because at that moment, I felt saved. Now, that's the story. That's the historical data. Now we're going to comment on the good, the bad, and the ugly from this. Wesley's desire and God's assurances are very touching to me. They're inspirational to me. I am inspired by anyone who so desires God, who struggles inwardly, who will work themselves to death for God, who has enough integrity to realize how hard they work, even though they're holier than everybody else, they are not good enough on their own. And my heart goes out and is touched by someone who pleads to God, God, I'm a sinner, I'm going to hell, but use me anyway, because I love you that much and care for you that much, and I treasure your truth that much. That's, that's inspirational. That's motivating. It's sad, too. It's also touching to me that God reaches down in the life of John Wesley and gives him the emotional support that he needed. Gives him that touch that gave Wesley some assurance at the time. Now, in the vein of the good, the bad, and the ugly... I am troubled by Wesley's over-reliance on his feelings. If you heard Dr. Fleming this morning, Dr. Fleming did not say at any point in his sermon, you know you're saved because you feel it. You feel it. Don't get me wrong. I tell you, and I believe he said this morning, that, that how we think and how we feel and, and, and God wants us to know that we're saved. 
But our salvation is never dependent upon how we feel today. I don't know about you, but my feelings are not the best barometer for what's true in the world. Perhaps yours are. But mine aren't. My feelings are a much better barometer of how my personal weather is today. If I've eaten enough carbohydrates, I feel really good in spite of anything going on. If I've not eaten enough carbohydrates, and on top of that I have a tinge of illness, I'm not feeling too hot about anything. At my office, they generally have a rule. There are times where I'm handed carbohydrates. <laughs> in fact, one time in particular, I was in trial. I was on a diet while I was in trial. thought, I'm going to be away from Becky for six weeks. This is a great time to lose that little weight I need to lose so that she welcomes me back with, wow, look how good he looks. And so my trial team, literally, there are six of them that formed at the door. And they all walked in with the box of cookies and said, you eat or we quit. We, we just, uh, we're not, you know, my feelings are not a good barometer of what's true in the world. So we're going to pause here and we're going to have a point or two for home, but don't pack up because we're not done. This is like a change in the way we do things. We're going to have points for home, then we're going to move on and talk about something else for a minute. So this is not like, oh, gee, we get out 20 minutes early, text, you know, the family to meet at Luby's. Um, no. Point for home. Points for home. We have righteousness from God by faith not works. And that's what Pastor Fleming has told us. He used the Ephesians passage I was going to use, so I had to get out there and make some little changes in my PowerPoint real quick. We'll now use Romans. Same guy wrote them. Same Holy Spirit inspired them, and it's pretty consistent. Now, a righteousness from God, apart from law. If we were in Greek class, I would make you realize that there is no um, it, it's it's a, an article called the definite article in Greek. It's the word the. If Paul had put the word the in front of law there, he'd be talking about the Old Testament. But he doesn't have the word the there because he's talking about any law, any concept of I work and satisfy God. We have a righteousness from God apart from any work concept. It's been made known to which the law you see, he used the word the there because he's talking about the Old Testament. That's why I capitalized law, the Torah, to which the law and the prophets, that's the rest of the Old Testament aside from the Torah, testify. This righteousness comes from God through faith in Christ. See, we have a righteousness. When the Bible talks about our hope of salvation, it doesn't mean like, oh, a lottery ticket. I hope I win. That's our English word, hope. The Greek word hope, elpis, means a confident expectation. You should make a note of this because you're going to want this one day. You need to know when you read your Greek New Testament, hope means confident expectation. Our translators, we just don't have a good English word for it beyond hope. So we translate it hope. 
But it means literally a confident expectation. Here are your two passages to hinge off of. You know, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, the hope of salvation as our helmet, Paul writes. Here are your two passages to remember what hope means, okay? Acts 16, 16. This is the story where Paul's walking along and he's being constantly pestered by this woman who has an ability to tell the future. And in Acts 16, 16, it says that this woman had earned, past tense, a great deal of money for her owners. She'd already earned them a great deal of money. She was their occupation. They owned a slave who could tell the future And people were paying big bucks for it. Of course, Paul gets concerned that this woman with the evil spirit, which was allowing her to tell the future, is pestering him. So he turns around, rebukes the evil spirit, sends it out of her. Whoops. And in verse 19 we read, When the owners realized their hope of making money was gone, they got ticked off. Okay, Now, that's the word hope. Same word, L-peace. It doesn't mean that they were thinking, oh, gee, I hope we make some money. They, they were banking on it. They mortgaged the house on it. This was expectant income. They confident, they had no idea when they walked out that day that this prophet of God, this apostle, was going to get uh, uh, frustrated with the spirit, kick it out of her, and their confident expectation, their cash flow disappeared. You see how the word hope is used there? That gives you a good sense of what the Greek word hope means. It's something they confidently expected. So when we talk about hoping for our salvation, it's not because we have some uncertainty about it. It's actually because we are certain. We confidently expect it. It just hadn't happened yet in the sense that we don't have it eternally. We're not living in it in a heavenly sense. That's probably the best way to say it. But we can be confident of our salvation. You want to know about the day you got saved? It was almost 2,000 years ago. See, it's a historical event that happened that, as Pastor David had said, has present consequences. Has a, has a present effect. So, this is the righteousness that sustains us whenever our hearts condemn us. When you have that time where you just say, God, I don't, I don't know if I'm saved or not. I don't have the certainty. I don't feel it. I don't feel it. When your heart condemns you, ask yourself, have you put your faith? And by faith, not this mental assent, but the conviction, the trust, the commitment that Pastor David talked about. Have I sat on the stool, if you will? Have I, have I faith in Christ? Have I done, if I've got the faith in Christ, your heart condemning you needs the assurance that we have that, that John writes about in his first epistle. He says, this is how we know what love is. Not feel. You go back and look at what Wesley said. I just felt like I wasn't. I felt like I wasn't. I felt like I wasn't. Well, this is how you know. This is how we know what love is. This then is how we know, know, know that we belong to the truth, and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God's greater than our hearts. I would give you... Uh, I have a Bible. Hold on. In the, the Psalms. Yeah, we've got time for this. This is important. In the Psalms, um, the psalmist writes, Psalm, I think it's 42 or 43, as a deer pants. It's 42 and 43. 
as a deer pants. Let's go to the Elmo. Look at this for a minute. All right, Psalm 42. As a deer pants for streams of water, my soul pants for you. My soul thirsts for you. Where can I go and meet with God? I'm crying. That's my food. I can't eat. All I can do is cry. I've lost my appetite. And everybody's saying to me all day long, where is your God? This is how I feel. I feel like I'm... I can't even eat. I'm so upset. I can't find God. Where is God? Why am I all alone in this world? Look what the psalmist says. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. I remember how I used to go with the multitude. How I'd lead the procession to the house of God. Shouts of joy, thanksgiving. And then you get this, this not just some pep talk. It's truth. He says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. I will yet praise Him. He's my Savior. He's my God. See that? When your heart condemns you, just go back and, and you... This I know. I put my trust in Jesus. Jesus Christ died for me. I trusted in Him because I'm not good enough. Because I can't do it right. Because I do mess up. And that's why He saved me. And I don't feel it, and I don't feel good about it, and I don't feel right with God, and I feel like I'm mad, or I feel like I'm upset, or I feel like my world's crumbling. But I know this. That God is in the saving business, and He has reached out, and He has saved me. And weeping may last in the night, but rejoicing will come in the morning. And what I love most about Psalm 42 is you'd think it would end there, Right at verse 5? But it doesn't. Because after this guy goes through all of this stuff, after David does all of this, look what happens. But my soul is downcast within me. It, it, it doesn't get any better for him. You know, and, and he has to go through the whole process again. Why are you downcast, oh my soul? Why so disturbed? Put your hope in God. And it, a third time, this is actually two psalm, one psalm that's just, we've divided it up into two for our English. Vindicate me, O God. You know, you are my God. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning? Send forth your light. Guide me. Bring me to the mountain. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. Do you all see that? Okay, next point. Wesley, circuit rider evangelist. Dun, 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 dun. Um, I just love the good, the bad, and the ugly. I think it's like one of the best movies of all time. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, with due respect to Clint Eastwood, uh, John Wesley, circuit rider evangelist. This fella preached for God like no one since, I, I don't know, Paul almost. He, he, he dies at 87. He, he doesn't retire. He preaches right up to the end. He didn't have a good car. He didn't have a car. He didn't ride a great train. He didn't have a train. He walked and he rode a horse. He went over 250,000 miles walking and on horseback to share the gospel and to preach. He did it in Britain. By that I mean England, Scotland, 
Ireland, and Georgia, America. He would speak to huge crowds. Now, the numbers he gave us. But he looked like a pretty honest guy reading his journals, but they are preacher count. You know, so as I stand here and speak to the thousands of you out there, <coughs> uh, no, uh, he spoke to 20, 30,000 people at times. That's without a microphone. That's a lot of people. He spoke till he died. He never retired. He would preach outside to these crowds. And I'll, you'll hear more about that next week when we talk about the, the, the revivals and the, the Methodist church movement of which he spearheaded and, and Whitfield and others who followed in his wake and Asbury who he sent over here to America. And, 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 and we'll hear about this in more detail. But, I mean, this was like he had the Woodstocks of his day. Okay? He would preach through persecution. They tried to burn down houses where he was. They tried to beat him up. They tried to arrest him. He'd get run out of town on a rail. He wouldn't be invited back to the churches. Lots of persecution. And I asked myself this question, why? Why was he being persecuted? And I've got a few answers. Um, he was preaching to the outcasts, by and large, in the lower classes. He didn't really go to the big parties where the Fortune 50 were the wealthy, the powerful, the influential. He tended to go to the brickyards and the factories and the people who were being ignored by the powerful and the rich. People who were being used to make the powerful and the rich. And he would come and minister to them. And he would speak to them. And he'd give them money if he had money. He'd give them whatever he needed or whatever they needed. Pretty incredible. And he would take the passages. He'd take the passage where Jesus stood up in the temple and, and, or in the synagogue and read from Isaiah that God had appointed him to preach good news to the poor. And that's what he did. Um, that got the upper classes, by the way, upset. They didn't like that he, you know, everybody has their place was their mentality. He preached on holiness. This got people upset. He was like um, against cussing. He was against uh, violence. Um, he would preach sermons on... Uh, there's a sermon he preached on dress where he said, quote, cleanliness is next to godliness, close quote. He's the earliest person we have saying that. The way he preached it, it looks like he's quoting a well-known proverb, but we don't have it in writing before him. He's certainly the one who is responsible for our common usage of that. It's not in the Bible. It's in Wesley. Cleanliness. I did have someone one time say to me at the office, can you find for me in the Bible where it says cleanliness is next to godliness because so-and-so is not washing their hands after they use the bathroom? <laughs> Toto empleados. No. Um, I said, uh, no, it's not in the Bible. But it's in John Wesley, okay? He preached with charismatic effect. This got people upset. By that I mean not only was he uh, full of charisma, but his audiences um, had charismatic uh, responses. There was shaking and, and uh, laughter and, and all, uh, healing. People uh, uh, um, with visions and 
and there were charismatic responses that scared everybody in the church and, and in villages. And, and in fact, some of the people who attacked him and said, you know, get out of here and, and would try and persecute him or stand up and disrupt the meetings, uh, they would all of a sudden come under influence of, of something and, and, and fall down and, and lose their sight and, and start shaking. I mean, all sorts of things until they said, oh, my goodness, and accepted Jesus, and then they were cured. And, and a lot of this was going on in his meetings, and, and that got people upset. So if we look at it from the perspective of the good, the bad, and the ugly, let me tell you some of the good in his sermons and in his writings. Wesley came down harder on slavery than anybody that I can find in that era. It's not just he would stand up and say, hey, slavery is wrong. He'd say that, but he wrote. He wrote for posterity. It wasn't a selective message to the right audience. He wrote and published bone-chilling accounts of what slavery was and how it arose and how slaves were gathered from Africa and what they were being used for. And he wrote and addressed the various arguments being put forward by the Christians of the day or the government of the day about either economic necessity or the fact that it's legal to have slaves. I loved his quote. He says, it may be legal, but right is right and wrong is wrong and it's wrong. It may be legal, but it's evil. The Christian doesn't concern himself with what's legal. They concern themselves with what's right. And this is not right. Really strong. Um, perfectionism. This may not be, from my theological perspective, this is not the good. Wesley did, later in his life, get to a... Not just later in his life, midway through his life, actually taught and believed that Christians could reach a point where they got perfect in this world and they sin no more. And it's an outgrowth from that perfectionism that becomes the Pentecostal movement as people theologically decide that this is a second dispensation of grace, if you will, or a second touch of God, a second level of, of holiness where you become perfect and you start speaking in tongues and you get forgiveness of sin and things. And we'll see that arising within his lifetime from some of that teaching. Points for home here. Strive for holiness. It's a good thing to strive for because our God is holy. We believe and trust in our God and he says it's the best thing for us. And he wants us to do it. And he's not just our God, he's our Lord. So he says that we believe it. But we live with our salvation by faith. You don't get saved by faith only to keep your salvation by works. Your salvation is by faith from the very beginning to the very end. From first to last. This is what Paul says in Romans 1.17. In the death of Christ... A righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that's by faith from first to last. He means by faith, that's how you get it, and that's how you keep it. That's our righteousness. Point for home. In Christ, we don't await a second coming, a coming second blessing. In Ephesians, chapter the pastor's already covered, go back to chapter 1, where Paul says, we were blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Okay, I can do this real quick. Minor Greek lesson, because a few of you out there have studied Greek. I know that, so I'm throwing this in for y'all. Pastor David talked about the past tense, the perfect that was being used, where Paul says this is an event that happened, but it's got a continuing consequence. That's one of the ways that the past tense is used in the Greek. There's a second way called the aorist, 
And it's where you're emphasizing this is a historical event in the past. That's the emphasis. I'm not talking about present consequences or anything else. I'm saying historically, at one point in history, this happened. And that's what Paul uses here. We were blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's already occurred. We have, if you are a Christian, you have all of God's spiritual blessings. You merely need to walk in them and enjoy them. It's not, he saves these for the special holy few, and these are for general distribution. It's not reserved seating for spiritual blessings. I just got general admission. No. It's, It's come as you are. And take your place at the table because the food is there for a plenty. Um, closing and then we'll pray. Wesley on money, he said, make all you can. Save all you can. Give all you can. We're real good at make all you can. We're not as good at save all you can. We're really bad at give all you can. Ours tends to be spend all you can. Well, I gave it to the guy at the register. <laughs> That's not what he meant. Wesley could have died a mega wealthy man. He had almost no money to his name when he died. And it's not because of bad investments. It's because he gave it away. He absolutely gave away all the money he had. On divine guidance. Eh. He kind of had this uh, idea that God works where humans stop working. So, should I get married? Yes, no, not yet. Writes it on a piece of paper, puts it in a hat. God, let me draw the right answer. His marriage didn't turn out all that good either. Um, That's not the right way to do it. God's renewing our minds because He made us with them. And He wants us to use them. You want to know what God wants you to do? Read the book. But read it. You don't have to do it. Wesley was fond of reading it this way. Judas went and he hung himself. <laughs> Go thou and do likewise. <laughs> Best two out of three. What thou doest, doest quickly. Now, uh, the, the, that's, I urge you to read your Bible. I urge you to go to God for guidance, but not leaving your head on the hat rack. Put your hat on the hat rack. Use your head. Read the Bible. Read it in context. Pray. Let God speak to you. Take counsel from others. We've got a lot of tools at our disposal for determining His will. It's not potluck like that. Okay? Wesley, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Next week, it's going to really be fun to go through some of this. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for um, men of of our faith that that we can read about and study and be encouraged. I thank you for John Wesley. I thank you for using him to instigate tremendous revival throughout the land to bring uh, countless people to your kingdom, Lord. In the midst of all of his good, all of his bad, all of his ugly, your hand has worked in his life to change the course of your church in the direction it was headed. And I thank you that we are beneficiaries of that and that we have a chance to amen your work not only in history but the same work you do today in our lives. Please, Lord, give everyone in here an opportunity to meet you at the cross, walk away with faith, and then have the confident expectation that you hold them in your hand for eternity. We pray through our Savior, Jesus. Amen.